Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Welcome back everyone to Knocked Up. Our first episode in quite some time with just Raelia and myself. Welcome, Raelia. Hi, Jordi. How are you? Surviving lockdown. Very happy we're about to see a little bit of relief. I haven't actually listened to the recent Dan Andrews announcement, so um, you have to tell me what relief. (laughs) Oh, well, for everyone who doesn't know, it's Sunday the 27th of September, the day we're recording. And I'm about to tell Rayleigh that both her children are going back to school in a week. Oh, that's exciting news. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd like that. Today we've had a listener request, um, which is about donor sperm. And I have to say, I'm quite fascinated in this in a selfish way as well. Not that I'm yet convinced to do it, but as we know, I do have frozen eggs and as yet no partner. Who comes to you wanting to use donor sperm? So there's a big variety of patients that I see who need donor sperm ultimately, but the majority are either single women wanting to become mothers by choice in that context or same-sex female couples who need sperm to have a baby in their relationship. There's also another group of heterosexual couples where the the man has no usable sperm Mm -hmm. or where there's a medical reason that his sperm is being avoided. So an example of that I can give you is one of my patients who unfortunately had a blood reaction to a previous pregnancy. She's got a negative blood group and her partner has a positive blood group. And unfortunately, uh, they had some obstetric tragedies related to rhesus iso immunisation and chose to use donor sperm with a negative blood group to avoid that happening again. So that's a very medical example. There are also other examples where a man may have non-obstructive azoospermia, so he, he doesn't make any sperm in his testis. And I think we're doing an episode uh, soon with Dr. Darren Katz about microtesy, and that's one yeah. of the ways that... So, so men sometimes with non-obstructive azoospermia have little tiny pockets of sperm-making tissue in the testis, even though they've got no sperm in the ejaculate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can find those little pockets and actually use them to help them have babies. But... There are other men who do have non-obstructive azoospermia who unfortunately have either what we call Sertoli cell-only syndrome or we know from the outset before even contemplating a microtesi that a genetic issue that we found in their Y chromosome 
means that there's no chance of finding sperm and we use donor sperm in those situations. Other situations, for example, are if a man has had chemotherapy and didn't have the ability or the time to freeze sperm before that and his sperm making potential is now zero after testicular damage. So there's, there's as you see, a really wide variety of contexts where donor sperm is needed to conceive. And I guess the, the type of context and also the female factors involved really do kind of um, influence which pathway we go down. It's really quite varied, isn't it? What happens next? So they've come to you and it's decided that they need the donor sperm. How does the process differ to needing your help generally? Well, it really does depend on the female factors as well. So just because a couple or a woman needs donor sperm doesn't really tell me anything else about her, but she can tell me everything about her. So I usually do see the patient for the first time, take a medical history, do some detailed examinations to investigate her fertility. And then we have a think about the context and then decide how we go forward. So, you know, we, we come to a series of crossroads and I suppose the first crossroad is selecting the donor. And that really, I think, falls into two broad categories, either a known donor, so somebody in the person's life, mm-hmm or a clinic recruited donor. So that's really the first decision. Once you've made the decision you want to have a baby and you want to use donor sperm, the next decision is, well, who will be my donor? Why might someone choose a known donor? So look, there's many advantages to choosing a known donor. One advantage is that with a known donor, there are less restraints around the different treatment options that we can use and how many times we can try. So there's really no rules about that with a known donor and there's no clinic imposed restrictions with a known donor. So if a woman has normal fertility with a known donor, technically she doesn't actually need to use a clinic. She might decide to have a private arrangement where she does self-insemination. I would highly recommend if she's considering this option that she still should come and see someone like me and have the full workup and access counselling and also access legal advice because things can get a little bit more grey around who is a parent and who is a donor in this situation when it's DIY. There's a lot of processes that really safeguard that issue in a clinic context and we've done an episode in the past with a lawyer, Diana Elsner, who's gone through some of those issues with us, but they are really complicated. So that's one option. Another option, which is a popular one with a known donor, is to come through the clinic process, have the full workup of both the donor and the recipient woman or recipient couple, and then freeze sperm that we can then use in a clinic setting. There's a lot of advantages about that as well, because Really, the donor doesn't have to be involved every five minutes. They've kind of done their thing. We quarantine the sperm for three months before we use it clinically in that setting because we really have a onus to protect the woman from catching any sexually transmitted infections from the donor sperm. So we make sure that any 
kind of period of time where a donor might have been seroconverting to something, say, like HIV, has been weighted out before the sperm is used and that the donor has been double-checked for that problem. So we, we do all of those things. We also do genetic testing to make sure that we know about any compatibility issues in terms of serious recessive diseases between the donor and the recipient. So that's really helpful. And in terms of other advantages of a known donor, well, some people want the donor in their child's life and in their life as a figure in the child's life. And that has to be navigated and negotiated. And look, it's it's a tricky situation, but there are obviously pros for that as well. And in terms of every woman and couple's choice, it will be different and unique and they'll feel differently about known versus clinic recruited sperm donation. So I would strongly encourage anyone who's thinking about using a known donor to access professional counselling and access individualized legal advice just to talk through all these issues make sure they're all over all of the issues that could potentially be coming up and that way they can make an informed decision but it's it's really lovely and beautiful uh, for the couples that I've treated with a known donor and after all of the counseling I think everyone's on the same page and things tend to go really well. Do you see one more than the other donor versus I'm sorry, known donor versus anonymous? Yeah, I do see probably more, more, it's not so much anonymous, but no. it's, it's clinic recruited donor. donor. Yeah, it's a clinic recruited donor situation. So I work with Melbourne IVF and at Melbourne IVF, we have a program where the unit, the IVF unit actively recruits sperm donors. And these donors are altruistic men who are not paid a, large amount of money to donate sperm. They do it altruistically, meaning they do it to help people. They undertake counselling. They give advice. Nowadays, they tend to provide a childhood photo. Donors who are, have been on the, on the program for a longer period of time didn't used to do that. So we don't have photos for every single donor, but we do have for new donors. In terms of women's access to sperm, it's kind of immediate with a clinic donor program because it's not that those donors don't have to do all the same things that the known They've already done do. it. They've uh, already done it, exactly. So before the sperm is, is offered, the donors have already jumped through all of those hoops and done all of those tests. Okay. And so we know more about them already. In terms of another advantage of a known donor, if you think of it as an advantage... If you have an, a known donor, they may just be donating to you and there may not be the situation where there could be donor siblings, mm-hmm. um, whereas from a clinic situation, and this may actually be perceived as an advantage as well as a disadvantage, it just purely depends on your perspective, there might be other women who've had the same sperm donor from a clinic context. And what that means is that in the future, your child may have some genetic half-siblings from another family. Yep. And are they there have the option to connect. Yeah, there are. And they're different state to state. So we are practicing in Victoria and most fertility specialists will be very familiar with the state in which they practice. In mm-hmm. Victoria, our limit is 10 families for any one donor. So, and that includes the donor's own family. So if the donor has their own children that they have raised, mm-hmm. then that counts as one allocation. And okay. they can then donate to form another nine families. 
There's been okay. a little bit of red tape in the past and we're looking to the government to clarify this and they've yet to 100% clarify it. There's been suggestions that same-sex female couples should count as one allocation. Uh, if, oh, so that's if two women use the same sperm. Okay, because it's yeah, technically one family. family. That's yeah. right. However, it's historically been counted as two allocations because the wording in the legislation is per woman, not per family. So right. there's a bit of uh, kind of behind the scenes work going on in that area. Yeah. Okay. For people listening who maybe feel that this is some sort of unusual situation that you'd need donor sperm and maybe it's really an exception. How in demand is donor sperm? Look, I would say it's much more in demand than, than it used to be in that, you know, women are, are getting to the point where we're very aware that when we reach a certain age, fertility opportunities are limited. And many women do feel that they don't need to be with a partner to have a baby if that's something they really want to do and it's you know on their absolute lifetime bucket list goal you know to-do list to become a mum they can do it and they don't need to be in a relationship they don't need to be defined by someone else's wishes so I do find that there are more women in the single group that are now committing to a, be a mum without necessarily doing that in the context of a relationship there's a growing number of same-sex female couples who've decided to have families. I think probably in the generation before that was more of a taboo mm. situation or just not very supported by the general population and by the society. But probably not spoken now, about much. Yeah, and probably just not facilitated and, and actually outward, you know, discrimination. I think yeah. you know, there was actually, it was actually not permitted for same-sex female couples to access donor sperm in a clinic setting until quite relatively recently there was a, a court case that John McBain one of the founding specialists of Melbourne IVF took to the I believe Supreme Court to really champion the rights of same-sex female couples oh. so yeah so since that and just since you know kind of having families in varied ways has been really much the norm instead of the exception mm there's more more people using donor sperm for people wanting to access donor sperm what's the process the first thing is to have the conversation and really set your goals and decide what you want to do and that's often the first conversation I have with a couple or with a woman in the consultation sometimes I see a woman and she's come to talk to me about egg freezing and I talk to her about donor sperm as an alternative to egg freezing and she decides to go down that pathway instead. So, you know, it just depends on the context of the woman and where she's at in her life. In terms of accessing the donor sperm, you first see a fertility specialist, usually like myself, yep. if you want to access donor sperm from a sperm bank or from an IVF unit. Mm -hmm. And even if you want to access with a known donor, but you'd like that clinical support, because it's, it is hard with a known donor. Some people are very lucky and they may conceive with self-insemination, but when you're in a heterosexual relationship and you're totally fertile and you're having sex every second day around ovulation and you're 21 years of age, your chance of getting pregnant per month is one in five. So that's just our, as we're not very fertile as a species. So no. there are people who are, who are more fertile than average and there are people who are less fertile than average, but 
on average, we've got about a one in five strike rate per month. That's if we're trying every second day around ovulation. Now that's a dedicated donor. It's going to be at your doorstep every second day, providing you with a sample around ovulation for months and months and months and months. So even with a known donor, it can be much more logistically satisfying to store sperm at a sperm bank. And then you can use that when you need it rather than relying on the not just the altruism and the kindness of your donor, but also the punctuality and the availability and, you know, all of those things that, that can be challenging. Don't know how women are doing it in lockdown. Yes. Yeah, so you're um, saying as a 40 year old, I probably should be strategic about these things rather than leave it to fate. Definitely. Planning, planning is winning. Okay. So let's say, and we know Raylia that this is not something that's going to be happening. Let's say I decided I wanted to have a baby and I've got my eggs in the freezer and they've been there a couple of years because you made me freeze my eggs when I was younger. What would the process be? So look, if you have frozen eggs and you are not having any luck on the apps. Yeah. And close to or over 40, your best bet is actually probably going to be your frozen eggs. So what I would suggest for someone in that search, in that look, it, it depends because it really depends on how many babies you ultimately want. And some people do want to try with the eggs that they have at the age that they are now thinking maybe I'll keep my frozen eggs in the freezer in case I want to have more than one child. And, you know, they're definitely going to be my best bet and pretty much my only bet if I want to have another baby and I'm starting in my early 40s because particularly as a single mother, you, you probably won't rush back to have a second child immediately because you'll have your hands full. So, you know, you might want to make that decision in a year or two. In terms of frozen eggs, we use a technique called ICSI, which is when we inject a single sperm into each warmed egg. And then we culture the eggs on for about five to seven days in the laboratory to create embryos. So it's the same as IVF. Exactly. So it's like, imagine taking the eggs out of the freezer. They were put in on the day of your egg collection, which is analogous to your ovulation day. And they're taken out, even though we fast forwarded however many years, they're taken out and it's still your ovulation day from their perspective. So we want to take them out of the freezer after getting you to the point in the cycle of your ovulation day. So, you know, there's lots of things we obviously want to do before we get to that point. We want to make sure you're immune to chicken pox and rubella and that you're, you know, nutrient replete. You've, you know, come, come to see me. I've made sure all of that's true. You know, you've, you've seen Wendy, our clinical nutritionist, and made sure you're fighting fit, ready to rock and roll. I made the most of my hundred days. You've been taking your folate. <laughs> You've been doing all those things. You're ready. You're ready to be pregnant. So what we do is we prepare your uterine lining to receive an embryo on the day that you ovulate. Or sometimes what I do is what's called an artificial cycle because it's just easier to schedule these things rather than kind of turning on a sixpence on a blood test on the day that you ovulate because we want everything to be exact. So often I'll just get your lining ready and then after. Um, we decide we take the eggs out of the freezer and then start some progesterone to get your lining really receptive. And then we, as those embryos culture in the lab, you know, not every egg will survive the warm, not every egg will fertilize, but hopefully with a good number put aside, um, we get some embryos 
and each embryo has about a 30 to 40% chance of making it to be a baby. Those that we put back, we usually would put back one at a time. So we'd put one back and any other embryos we have, we can refreeze. And so the they've episode, come a long way. The episode yeah, that think- airs before this is actually about twins and multiple births. So that's why Raylia is talking about putting one back. If you listen to what will have been last week's episode, you can hear a bit more about that. Yeah, and it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's generally the safest thing to do for both the woman and the baby to put one embryo back at a time. And our technology with freezing is pretty good. So depending on the age you were when you froze your eggs, I mean, I know how old you were, Geordie, when you froze your eggs, but, you know... I was 37. Eggs. And I was arguably a little bit late. I took a bit of convincing. <laughs> you were on the 36th side of 37. Anyway... That's true, um, just. You might consider genetic testing of embryos. I probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I probably would suggest that at the age that you froze your eggs, mainly because the embryos are what they are and there's a limited number of them that we're going to make in an egg warming cycle when we do embryo testing we really want to do that to really improve the chance of finding an embryo in the mix that's going to make a baby and reduce the risk of having a baby affected by a chromosomal problem that can predispose to miscarriage or abnormalities in the baby but I would say that on balance if we're using frozen eggs and we've got a limited number of embryos and you were 36 or 37 you could argue that we would just let those embryos have a go and transfer the embryos and do all of the testing that we could do in early pregnancy just as if you conceive naturally at that age. So that would probably be my recommendation for most women and couples, depending on how they feel about it, of course. If they really, really want to test the embryos, I would not be averse to it, but I wouldn't be pushy. Now, if they were making embryos with their own eggs at 38 or 39 or 40 or even beyond, we get to that point where the absolute majority of embryos are unfortunately going to be abnormal and it's the occasional embryo that is going to be normal, if they're making a really good number of embryos, but there's a lot that aren't going to work, finding that kind of golden egg and golden embryo more quickly can actually be really powerful for them. And also being able to store for a longitudinal plan embryos that have good you know, background genetics so that we know at least they've got the right building blocks. They still need to do everything right not every embryo with the right genes is going to be able to make a baby it's going to be roughly one in two that can that have the right dna a little bit less actually more like a 40 percent chance with a normal genetic makeup but taking those embryos out of the mix that don't have the right instruction manual is going to be something that's quite powerful for them and quite a good prospective strategy for them so that would be something that I would talk to about a woman who might be doing IVF with donor sperm to have uh, a baby and who might really want to have an embryo or two up her sleeve because she really does in an ideal world want to have more than one child over time or at least the potential to do that and who is kind of our age 40 or beyond I'd really be talking about genetic testing of embryos if she had the ability to make a large number of embryos. 
Which is also why you urge people to freeze their eggs as young as they can, around 30. Absolutely. I think 30 is the sweet spot for egg freezing. It just keeps so many more options open for you. And the resource that you create is such a stronger resource and it's much more cost effective to put away young eggs with better pregnancy potential. Just the chance of having a baby per egg is much better. So I always say to women who are thinking about egg freezing, if you're thinking about it and you're in your early 30s or even late 20s, um, that's probably the best time to do it. Women often hear the number 35 and panic, but really, unfortunately, 35 is a little late in the piece to really get the best result from egg freezing. You really have to do it a little bit earlier if you want to get the best and most cost-effective result. And I'm usually counselling women who are a bit older that they need to do more and put more eggs in the freezer, which often requires more rounds of egg freezing to get a similar outcome. Mm. I, had, I had two rounds and I had a good outcome, but... It's not easy. If you can do it younger and do one round, I'd recommend it. Once you're pregnant with using donor sperm, is the pregnancy any different? Is there anything that happens differently once you're pregnant? I wouldn't say so. Same checks as everyone, same everything. You've got to remember that no matter how we get pregnant, The baby's got 50% of the DNA from someone who's not a relative of ours, who has nothing to do with us. It's quite amazing, really. It is completely Um, amazing. Yeah. So whether that DNA comes from a partner or a donor really makes no difference. I mean, arguably with a donor, you can say that sometimes you can be a bit more choosy, you know? So if you've got a negative blood group, you might choose a donor with a negative blood group, whereas you're not going to reject your partner because of their blood group and you're not going to go on a first date with someone and say, by the way, what's your blood group, you know? So it's... um, Maybe we should. We should start. We can add it to our Bumble Bumble profiles. I wanted to ask about how the conversation you have with a couple when they need to use donor sperm. So I, I don't know and I imagine receiving the news that your partner's sperm is not ideal is, is really tough. And yes, there are surgical options, but sometimes donor sperm is just the only or just significantly the best option. And people might be really hesitant to hearing that news. How do you counsel people around that decision? One thing to say is that it's not a decision that happens immediately. So we talk about what all the options are with donor sperm, but I usually would find that it takes couples time to process the information that they're going to need a sperm donor if they're going to have a baby. Some couples do feel that it's the deal breaker if it's not sperm from their partner and they don't proceed. Some people feel that initially and then change their minds. I'd say a lot of people do actually. People take time to come around to the idea and that's okay. Also be in my mind, when a couple comes to see you about infertility, so often the woman is going to think it's her and possibly have already dealt with the fact that she'll need to go through the treatment. But when in fact it's the man, that's not necessarily a scenario they've considered so much. It's true. And at least 50% of the time, I always say this with couples who are suffering infertility, there is a male factor. And it is so important to look to find it because if you assume that it's not there 
and you do every test under the sun for the woman, you're not going to progress that couple forward without investigating the male. So I always encourage women and men in, in relationships who are trying to conceive together to come together and start the process of investigations together. In terms of a man coming to terms for the fact that he is infertile, I think it's very similar for a woman who needs to use donor eggs. I mean, it's, it's, it's about our perceptions and it's about our expectations. We have self-worth tied to that sometimes. Mm. I always say the more open-minded we are to solutions that might not fit our previous thoughts about how the world would be and how things would happen, the more options we have before us and the more chances we have to succeed in our ultimate goals Mm -hmm. because most people the ultimate goal is to have a family they would ideally like to use their dna and use their sperm and egg but it's not a deal breaker if you can't do that you can still have a beautiful family and you know there's so many couples i've helped with donor eggs and donor sperm and donor embryos Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's a beautiful way to have a family it's most of the time, not a first choice method. The exception being same-sex female couples who have always always known that they would be in that situation, that they'd need a sperm donor. They, for them, it is a first choice method and it's beautiful. Mm. I love treating same-sex female couples. Look, treating patients with infertility, I love it and it's an absolute calling for me, but you carry a lot of emotion mm. and there's a lot of distress and there's a lot of anxiety and you know, part of my job is to really help couples navigate their pathway through that and towards their goals which is great but it can be quite stressful for everybody it's even stressful as a doctor because you carry a lot of this emotional burden with you as you feel for your patients day in day out throughout your life as a fertility specialist I find treating same-sex female couples really joyful and it's beautiful. Mm. So I love it. (laughs) Single women, same. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's totally beautiful. Okay. So you know I like to go back to basics. How do you get pregnant with donor sperm? So in terms of what I do in my day-to-day job, I usually use either IUI, which is otherwise known as artificial insemination and superovulation. I'll go into that a bit more. Or IVF. And in IVF, we sometimes use what's called ICSI, which is where we inject a single sperm into the egg. We do that if there's a severe male factor infertility, but we also do that with donor sperm if we've been given a very small amount because that's how much is frozen. Of course, because depending on the number of sperm, you might only be able to do IVF. You couldn't do IUI. Well, the donor might have given their donation and it might have been frozen in little straws and we might have been allocated a straw. So there might not be enough in that straw for IUI. There might only be enough for IVF. So for some donors, that's the case. Okay. Doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with the, the actual sperm. There will be some donors who have what we call ICSI quality sperm who haven't been rejected as donors, but when you look at their sperm, you'd say, "Mm, that would probably work with ICSI. It may or may not work with IUI. So 
there's that also, but mainly with the allocots of sperm that are given to us per cycle, we tend to use ICSI mm-hmm. to save sperm, for conservation of sperm. Yes. In terms of IUI, you do need a lot more sperm per shot and it is a, usually a single shot. So on the day of actual ovulation, in the lead up to ovulation, we've given some drugs usually to boost ovulation. So there might be more than one egg. Remember we talked about there being about a one in five chance of making a baby per egg released. So sometimes we give a little boost just to ask for maybe two or maximum three eggs, depending on the age of the woman. That might be crazy and someone young. Two eggs. There is always a chance of multiple pregnancy when we go for two eggs in a cycle. So, you know, some twins come out of IUI, but it just also does improve the chance of the technique actually working. So that's called super ovulation. And IUI itself stands for intrauterine insemination or artificial insemination. What I do is I put a tiny little tube inside the womb and I squirt the sperm gently into the womb. And what we're trying to do is really bathe the fallopian tubes with sperm. Remember that ovulation happens at the end of the fallopian tube and fertilization happens there. The egg is taken up by the tube and over about a week, between five and seven days, an embryo passes down the fallopian tube towards the womb. And then it starts to implant during a window that is generally in a more natural type of cycle, about three days. So when a woman comes in to have an IUI, we put the sperm inside. We've squirted the sperm right up into the fallopian tubes. That's why we say, you know, you really don't need to lie down for a long period of time. You don't need to put your legs in the air. The egg is not yet in the tube. It's all about squirting the sperm right up into the tube. And then... What happens next? It's out of our hands. It's in nature's hands, destiny's hands. The embryo is not going to come back down into the womb for another week. So that's IUI. In terms of IVF, I always say, and I I say this all the time to patients, that an IVF lab is trying to be the world's best fallopian tube. All of that stuff that we were talking about in the fallopian tube, the fertilization, the embryo development, We're trying to emulate and replicate as best we can and supercharge the environment to make it as good as practically possible in the IVF laboratory context. And then when we replace an embryo, we replace it back into the womb in that fertility window where the embryo would have got there anyway in nature. And that's why we've really shifted majorly to what's called blast assist culture because that's the stage that the embryo is at when it should reach the womb. And at the day two or three cleavage stage, which is when we used to transfer embryos 10 years ago, the embryo technically should have still been in the fallopian tube and the womb environment is not the best environment for that embryo. So it's less likely to make a baby than actually in the lab. So that's why we do that. With an egg that was frozen, instead of doing an egg collection like we do in the IVF, way of doing donor sperm conception. It's just exactly the same as previous episodes where we've described the IVF process. We use medication to ripen a number of eggs. We do an egg collection to go and collect the eggs. And then we insert the donor sperm. So with egg freezing, that first part has been done at the time that you froze your eggs. We press pause on the eggs for however many years. And then when the time comes back, 
to use them, we get you to the point of your cycle that you were at when we press pause and we press unpause. We take the eggs out of the freezer, we inseminate them. Five days later, we put an embryo back. It's, it's that simple. It's amazing. Yeah. So one caveat I do say to women who are coming back to use their frozen eggs with a partner, a little bit off, off topic, is we do have a opportunity or an opportunity to work on the sperm, work on his lifestyle, work on his diet, work on his behaviour. We don't have that as much with donor sperm because the donor sperm, you know, it's been frozen. It's been frozen. So really we work on our own self. We change what we can change. We modify the factors in our control. Just like all fertility treatments, there will always be factors that are outside of our control. So we change what we can change. And then we just pick a good specialist. We pick a really strong laboratory. We have a really well-orchestrated treatment and we try. And important to know for all women who are trying to have a baby, regardless of the context, that these fertility treatments are a journey. Not every treatment will be successful, but most of my patients are ultimately successful. So think of it as a process rather than as a single treatment. Some women start off trying with IUI with donor sperm and move on to IVF, and that's okay. Uh, it really depends on the context, on her age, on other factors, like if she has underlying fertility conditions as well, like endometriosis. So the bottom line is you need a full fertility workup from the get-go if you're thinking about having a baby with frozen sperm. Thank you so much, Raylia. That was, that was great. Thank you, everyone. And if you've got any questions, you can always contact us via the Knocked Up Instagram or via podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Don't worry, we keep all requests anonymous and we'd love hearing your feedback. Follow us on the socials at Knocked Up, at Dr. Raylia Liu and at Women's Health Melbourne. And if you feel like you can give us a good review on our platforms, we really appreciate it. It helps others to find us.